Hi, this is Jeff Salzenstein, and you are listening to the Functional Tennis Podcast. Welcome to episode 27 of the Functional Tennis Podcast. I'm Fabio Molly, your host. I hope you all had a great Christmas, got to spend some time with your family, and even maybe got to hit some tennis balls with some old friends. Really excited to speak to Jeff Salzenstein this week. Jeff is a former top 100 player. He's the oldest American to break into the top 100. He tells us about hits with Sampras, Federer, Rios, about some great matches he had. He tells us what he learned throughout his tennis career what he'd do differently if he was doing it again, and also what's needed for a player to break into the top 100. Jeff told some really good stories. He packed a lot in. You're really going to enjoy it. Before we get started, a big thanks to our podcast sponsors, Head. And for those that are new, welcome to the show. If you have some time after this, go check out our older podcast and have a listen to some great episodes in there. But let's hear Jeff's story. Hi, Jeff. Welcome to the Functional Tennis Podcast. Wow. It's an absolute pleasure to be with you, Fabio. I've been following your work on Instagram. So impressed with your content and honored that you want me to be a part of this podcast. Thank you. We've been talking about this for a while, so I'm really excited to have you on. Obviously, I've known about you for a while. I know you worked with our friend James McGee in previously, which we'll talk about that during this podcast. You helped him reach qualify for his only Grand Slam appearance he ever made. So really interested to hear about that. Also, I know you've been doing video online for a long time. So a bit about that and also some other stories you have. So really excited to have you on. And where would you like to start? Well, I guess I think we should start actually in the middle and we can work backwards. I'll set the scene just for those that are listening. It's 1997. I'm playing the second round of the U.S. Open, Arthur Ashe Stadium. It's the first year of Arthur Ashe Stadium's existence at the U.S. Open. And I'm up against, I'm about 140 in the world. I'm up against... Michael Chang. He's number two in the world. It's a second round match. It's a night match. John McEnroe on the call on TV. Friday night match. And I'm up 5-4 in the first set. I bounce the ball three times to prepare to serve, serving at set point. And I'm a lefty. I hit a nasty wide slice serve, pulled Chang off the court. He reached for the return. I come in at one of my signature angle backhand volleys to the open court and won the first set against Michael Chang. Crowd goes crazy. They're, they're looking at me like, who is this young American? Where the heck did he come from? And uh, I smiled and looked at my box. I had my friends there, friends from college, my parents, my coaches, even had my ex-girlfriend there who apparently wanted to be my girlfriend that week because I was in the <laughs> second round of the US Open. And uh, I tell people, it's an amazing experience, but that's when the match ended. The reason why it ended is because, and it's kind of a mindset story and, and helping people to believe, but I had this thought in my head going into the match is, hey, Jeff, whatever you do, don't embarrass yourself in front of millions of people tonight. And I didn't. I won the first set, but the problem is that that was my set point. And I ended up losing the next three match, three sets, and it was an entertaining match. But I didn't have that deep belief that I could find a way to beat the number two pe- player in the world. And I think the story speaks to, hey, here I was, one of the best tennis players in the world on a huge stage. And internally, I had a limited belief that held me back. And so I think it's a nice contrast between all the success that I've had, but also some of the limiting beliefs that I try to help people with today as a coach. Tell me, how old were you, Jeff? I was 23 years old 
And, um, you know, the next day I was in a, a Manhattan hotel with IMG. I was with Pete Sampras's agent and I was with a junior agent named David Egdis, who is now one of the top executives at Tennis Channel 20 some years later. And they said, wow, you, you got some talent, kid. And remember, I'm 23 and we'll talk about my college experience and my junior experience in a moment, but I'm 23 years old. I didn't sign with an agent out of college. I graduated from Stanford, got my degree. I didn't go on the traditional pro tennis route where you turn pro at 16, 17 or 18, like a lot of the European players do. And so I signed with them. And three months later, I was playing pickup basketball in Denver, Colorado, my hometown. Not exactly a tennis mecca, but that's where I grew up. And I'm playing basketball and I come down for a rebound and I felt a pain in my ankle. And that led me on a journey of, I was misdiagnosed for several months. We finally had got surgery. I got surgery on the ankle. Then I came back from that. And six months later, I had arm, I had arm pain. I, I was trying to get back into it. And then my first tournament back, I was playing Daniel Nestor in Miami, the Miami Open, which at the time might have been called the NASDAQ Open. And I beat Daniel Nestor in the qualifying round, but I felt a click in my knee. And that was misdiagnosed for about six weeks. Finally had surgery on my knee. So before the age of 25, I had two major surgeries and I saw my ranking go from 140 in the world basically back down to 600 or 700, starting over again, maybe even 800. And I'm 26 years old, starting over. So my pro career was marked by injuries. It was marked by hope. Uh, it was marked by getting so into performance. And that's probably why I'm the coach I am today, because when my body let me down at such a young age, I had to find reasons. I had to find solutions. And I kind of went outside the traditional route. So I, I studied nutrition. I studied footwork. I studied technique. I studied athletic performance. Anything I could get my hands on or anybody that I could train with, even outside of tennis, I was doing it. And so that's pretty much how I my whole pro career evolved with me kind of having this side door, a hobby of performance. And I was my own lab rat and guinea pig because we didn't have the resources back in the early 2000s that we have now with the internet and Instagram. And you can see how everyone's working out and all the latest advances that wasn't going on 15, 20 years ago. So quite a journey as a professional. And um, honestly, I've had quite a journey in tennis. That's been the, the, the thread from the age of four all the way up till now. I'm 46 at the time of this podcast. James McGee has told me you have the most curious mind that he knows. He just goes, you just want to understand every little single about everything. You want to know everything in so much detail. It obviously makes sense what you're saying back then. You tried to figure out a way to, you know, to get to know everything, to be as best as you can. But I just want to ask, while you're picking up these injuries, obviously it's mentally tough. You just signed with AMG, like previously. What is the agent saying to you? I, I don't often hear what happens when a player gets injured, they sign with an agent. Are they putting pressure on you? Is there any communication at all? What exactly is going on with the agent? Yeah, you know, when I so I signed with the agent and they had big hopes for me to break the top 50 in the world the following year. And I went and played some challenger events and I didn't do well. I had put a lot of pressure on myself because I had signed. The Chang match, I felt raised the expectations. And again, I had some holes in my game and I had some belief system challenges. And so again, anybody listening that's a tennis player or a coach, you've got to address the mindset. You've got to address the beliefs. And it really held me back. And when I got injured, 
you know, you, you said, what did, what did they say to you? Or did they put pressure on you? In my case, and I think in most cases, there's not much an agent can do for you when you're on the shelf. They want you playing. They want you winning. And so it was very quiet. David Eggdis is an amazing guy. He's been a friend of mine for 25 years. But sure, he would check in from time to time. But, you know, he's working with other clients that are doing well and winning. And so it's crickets. You know, people forget about you when you're not winning or when you're not playing well. And so you really have to have a strong foundation, a strong support system to be able to go through the adversity of those injuries, to go through the downtimes. Unfortunately, I had that with my family and and with my support system. Thinking about it, it's a bit like the VC world where, I don't know, an agent is like a VC and they take their bets on so many players thinking one of them must break through here. It sounds a bit like that. That's right. You get one out of 10 and you hit it big on the one and you hit it big on a Federer or a Sampras or a Zarev or a Cispas. Um, you hit it big and then the other nine you never hear about. And so that's the game that they play. And you mentioned Sampras before. And did you ever practice with Sampras? I did. I practiced with Pete Sampras twice. I practiced with, it's funny, my career was winding down or I was at the tail end when Djokovic and Nadal were coming on the scene. I had no idea, of course, that they were going to have the careers they had. I practiced with Federer right after he won his first Wimbledon. I believe it was 2003 or 2004. But the two times I practiced with Pete, we had a mutual friend. I would train at Saddlebrook down in Tampa, Florida, where a lot of pros have come through and train there after. I graduated from Stanford. And I remember Martina Hingis was number one in the world. She was 16, 17, 18 years old. And I remember her training there. And Jennifer Capriotti was training there. And I would just marvel, number one, at Capriotti's ball striking. And number two, with, with Hingis, I would marvel at how she would practice. Her mom had her practicing in a very unique way. She would start every practice at the service line or just behind the service line. But it wasn't your normal short court practice. She was hitting swinging volleys, regular volleys. She was working on specific footwork patterns in, in that transition area of the court. A lot of people call it no man's land. But she was spending 30 to 40 minutes there before she even went back and hit a ground stroke. And I think her hands and her anticipation and her footwork and her instincts were developed by training in that unique way. So I got, I was able to watch that firsthand. And Pete Sampras used to live at Saddlebrook. I practiced with him once there. And then I practiced with him at Queens on the grass one time. And we had this mutual friend who, who kind of managed Saddlebrook. He was a bit of an agent slash coach manager type. And uh, after the two hits at two different times, I think Sampras gave me a, I don't remember which one was first. It might've been the Queens. Queens hit might've been second and the Saddlebrook hit first, but I was really nervous hitting with Sampras, you know, number one player in the world. He tends to kind of tank in practice or he doesn't really try. He's like the opposite of Nadal. He's very just relaxed and loose and doesn't really focus that much, which is crazy because he's able to turn it on in the big matches, but he's pretty inconsistent. But I was inconsistent too. My game was based on serve and forehand and weaponry and not long rallies. And so I was probably missing a little too much because he told my friend Kevin, he's like, I don't think I want to practice with this guy anymore <laughs> uh, because he doesn't give me any rhythm. I'm thinking to myself, well, Pete, you don't give us any rhythm either. So, but uh, I practiced with him. I practiced with Marcello Rios. That was an amazing experience at Saddlebrook. What was Marcello like to practice with? You know, people always say, you know, what a jerk he was and temperamental. And the day that I got him, he was great. I mean, he didn't say a lot, but he was respectful. He was he was quiet. He was focused on his business. This was after he had 
been number one in the world. So he had dropped a bit. I think I lost, we played a set and I lost seven, five, but the ball striking was, was off the hook. His ability to take the ball early, you know, he, that's a guy that if he had been totally locked in like a Nadal yeah. or a Djokovic or a Federer, he could have been probably one of the greats of all time. If you go on YouTube and look at the, what he was doing with the ball, it was insane. It was crazy. And so you know, people talk about, you know, the best of all time. And, and I agree, the, the three guys now, the big three are probably the best three players of all time. But the tennis was pretty darn good in my era as well. And I think, you know, we're always partial to the era we played in. But I always tell people now, I think the big three now are the best. But then when you go from like four down to 15, I think you could interchange those guys with players from, you know, 10, 15, 20 years ago, you know, if you look at Boris Becker or Edberg, or you look at videos of these guys, the way they served and volleyed, the way they attacked. And I know the game is different now, but even Rafter, I mean, I played Rafter before he won the U.S. Open. I played Ruzetsky before he got to the finals of the U.S. Open. I mean, Ruzetsky is serving 149. Like, what are these guys going to do if if they're playing Ruzetsky when he's hot? Or Rafter... You know, he was serving and volleying on clay and getting into the semis. Now, of course, he would have lost in the doll on clay, but everybody else, I think he would have given fits to on a neutral surface, on a fair hardcore with the ball kicking up and, and he's coming in on you. Pretty interesting. It's hard to compare, you know, generations, but I think, you know, again, after the big three, I think you could interchange a lot of these guys. I mean, like David Goffin, amazing player, but is he much different than Thomas Inquist? No, I don't think so. No. And yeah, speaking of Rafter, he was one of my idols growing up. I just thought he was just amazing. So athletic. The way he covered the net was unbelievable. And it was just really exciting to watch. And maybe I'm one of the few who wishes he won Wimbledon. I know a lot of oh, yeah. a lot of people were went the other way for Goran, but I really wish Rafter would have won Wimbledon. But look, that was just me. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, he got a little tight in those matches. He had he had every chance to beat Stampras as well there. And he his famous quote is he told himself to relax and he got even tighter. And um, you know, those are two winnable matches for him that probably at the US Open, where he played better and more clutch at the US Open. He won in ninety seven and ninety-eight. The year that Rafter one in 97 was his first Grand Slam. That was the year I played Chang in the second round. And Chang was number two in the world and Sampras lost maybe in the quarters of the semis. So, or maybe round of 16. So it was, Chang was the top seed left in the draw. It was his Grand Slam to win because you had guys like Rafter and Ruzetsky who had never, and Philippoussis, I think, but you had, they had never won a Grand Slam yet. And so Chang was supposed to win. He loses to Rafter in the semis in 97. And the famous picture of Carl Chang, Michael's brother and his coach, sitting in the player's box after Chang lost to Rafter for about two hours after the match. And they're just showing him sitting there. And and when you look back on Chang's career, Chang was never the same after that match. And Rafter, that's when Rafter elevated and came on the scene. And again, I think if he had played those Wimbledon matches like he was playing at the U.S. Open, he would have gotten that. He would have gotten that title. Yeah, tightness is a is a funny thing, isn't it? It affects us all. And in- we can talk for hours about the glory days, of course. But um, yeah, fascinating stuff. And tell me one other player before we move backwards chronologically. Agassi, did you practice with Agassi? Play Agassi? 
I never practiced with Agassiz. So it was this interesting thing again, where in my era, for whatever reason, I felt like there were certain top players that were not very approachable. And then there were others that were very approachable. And guys like Rafter and Gustavo Querton, they were so chill in the locker room. Kind of how I would picture maybe even Federer and, and Djokovic and Nadal. They, they seem to be cordial with everyone and conversations and talk. And yes, there's a time to be serious. But then the Sampras and Agassi, it almost felt like they were a bit standoffish or you couldn't really touch them. And so for me, I'm a bit of an introvert. I wasn't the type that would like go up and like introduce myself and say, hey, you want to have a hit or, or whatever. So the ball never fell in my corner for me to hit with Agassi, which which is unfortunate because, you know, that would have been that would have been fun. But he was a little intimidating. I'll be honest. You know, he softened later in his career. But, you know, it's almost like these guys have this aura or this wall around them where if you're not introduced by their agent or their coach, it's kind of hard to penetrate that. So never had that opportunity. But when I did play Federer mm. in Toronto, when I practiced with him, he had just won Wimbledon and he was, we were in Toronto for the Canadian Open and he was sitting in the locker room and I had lost in the qualifying. So I was there a couple of days practicing and he was going to play Hisham Marazi from Morocco and he's a lefty. And so I always the lefty that people would want to practice with if they were playing a lefty. So I knew I was being used for my left hand. And so I walked up to him. He didn't have a coach there. He didn't have a, his team. For whatever reason, he came over early on his own. And I walked up to him and I introduced myself. And he says, oh, yeah, I know you, Jeff. And I, first of all, I was surprised <laughs> who I was. You know, you think these big guys, they're not going to know someone who's 150 in the world. But he said, I know you. And he's like, yeah, I'd love to practice. We set the practice up. And at this time, I was about 28 or 29. And I had this like samurai ponytail kind of like Rafter used to have, or at one time, David Nalbandian used to have. And I remember we walked out to the practice court and I was walking behind him with my coach, Joseph O'Dwyer at the time. And everyone, all the fans are just following us. It's like this, it's like, he's like a rock star. And then they're pointing at me because they're like, they didn't know who I was, but they're like, gosh, this guy's got this like samurai haircut and he looks pretty athletic. You know, who is this guy? So they kind of were, they didn't know who I was. And then he just comes out there. He's got his racket bag over his shoulders. He looked like a junior tennis player just strutting out to the court with a bag over his shoulders and a can of tennis balls. No coach with him, which is probably the only time in his career he hasn't had someone around him. Again, I don't know why that was. And we practiced and I ended up losing the set 6-2. And I almost felt like he was in like first or second gear and he still had more levels to go. And he was on just cruise control. And I was struck by how quickly he could explode up to the net. He was almost like a cat. Like if he stretched you out, he would just be right on top of the net, just the explosive power. I was also struck by he would use that slice backhand cross court and the slice would stay so low and just like run through the court. And as a lefty, I'm hitting a forehand. He's hitting mm. a cross court slice. I'm hitting a forehand and I have a choice here. Do I roll it back to his backhand and have him just rip a backhand down the line or do I take a risk and go down the line and have him run across and hit a running forehand? It's like pick your poison against him. <laughs> and so it really is remarkable. Like, And this is in 2003. So, I mean, these guys have gotten even better in the last 15 years. So I was overmatched in that little practice set, I felt. And, um, you know, just a remarkable player, obviously. And 
Did you think, I know he just won Wimbledon then, did you think this guy is going to go on to do great things or was there not much thought of that? You know, when he was 17 or 18, somebody talked about this guy named Roger Federer and they said, you need to go watch this guy play. And, you know, at the time he's probably 10 in the world or 15 in the world. And I think he was 18 or 19 maybe. So I go out, I'm at the French Open. I don't remember if, I think I must have lost in the qualities or maybe I maybe it was a year I got into the main draw. I don't remember. But I walked to go watch him play and he was playing Arad actually and he put out one of the worst performances i've ever seen on a on a court fetter he was flat he was pouty he was mopey and i was like this is the guy that they're talking about this guy has no chance of doing anything and sure enough 18 months later or two years later that's when he got his act together and, and jumped a couple of levels and so then, of course, he won that first slam. And then, you know, you never know when a guy wins a slam. Is he a one-slam wonder or is he going to go on to achieve mm. greatness? So I knew that he was very talented, but I had no idea that he was going to do what he did back then. I don't think anybody would have known. One more quick story before um, we you know, shift to wherever you want to go, whether you want to go back in time or you want to go forward in time. I was slated to play Rafael Nadal at Wimbledon. What year? Again, 2003, 2004. I, have to, I think it was 2004. So I kind of made my run on the tour where I broke the top 100 for the first time at the age of 30, 2004. Yeah, because I would have been 30. I'm a 73 birthday. So yeah, I think it was the year, yeah, year, year leading up to my birthday. But anyway, I'm in the main draw of Wimbledon. I think it was in 2004. It was the first time I was directly into the main draw at Wimbledon. I qualified one other time in 96. But in 2004, I was slated to play Nadal, and he was 17 years old. He had not won French Open yet, and he had burst onto the scene. Everyone was talking about him, and here I am having a chance to play him. And ironically enough, when I broke the top 100, I had issues with my feet. I had plantar fasciitis in both feet. I was basically playing all these big events and picking up the check because honestly, I needed the money to survive out there, and it was my first time ever being in the main draw of these big events. But I wasn't 100% healthy. I was kind of gimping around. And interestingly enough, Nadal got a stress fracture. And so I didn't play Nadal. I played a lucky loser. I lost to the lucky loser in straight sets. But I, I never had that chance to play Nadal, but I, I was supposed to play him. That would have been sweet to play Nadal. Just especially as a, as a young 17-year-old would have been pretty good. Who did we have on the podcast a few weeks ago? Oh, Florian Meyer. Sorry, we had Florian Meyer on. He played Nadal in the final of a challenger. I think he got smoked by Rafa as a 16-year-old. Mm. And he was like, the, the kid was just incredible. And there's the other story. I, I can't remember where I heard the story, but it could have been Alex Koretch, actually. I heard on a different podcast where he turned up to practice with Rafa. As, and Rafa was only a kid. Rafa was like 15 at the time. And they got going and after about five minutes, Alex had to go over to Rafa and go, relax, kid, it's, it's only a practice here. He goes, he was just, his intensity and focus was unbelievable. And he was just hitting the ball as hard as he could. Different level, yeah. So one more adult story for me. You mentioned Joe O'Dwyer. For those that don't know, Joe O'Dwyer is an Irish coach who yeah. had been working in the States. Actually, he's back in Ireland at the moment, but he would have he would have worked with a friend of mine, James McGee and Jeff's friend. And he would have introduced you to, to James as well. What's your story? Tell us a bit about Mr. O'Dwyer. Yeah, again, so my journey is so unique. There's a lot of life lessons that I like to, now that I'm a coach, I like to share from my experience on how I can help others. 
some of the challenges I had as a junior player, a college player in the pros. Since we've been talking about the pros, I turn pro, I have all these injuries. I make a comeback at 26. I start from scratch and I'm building my way up and I get back to about 180 in the world at 28 years old. And I was living in LA for a short stretch. And there was this coach in Atlanta named Jerry Baskin, who worked with Robbie Ginepri, helped him get to top 20 in the world, and Brian Vahaley, who helped him get to about top 50 or 60 in the world. So my gosh, here's this teaching pro, this high performance pro in Atlanta, Georgia, that's developing these two kids from Atlanta, and they're both top 100 in the world. I've been on the tour five years, and I haven't broken the top 100 yet. So I go to, I fly to Atlanta to work with Jerry Baskin, and I really enjoyed it. And I ended up staying in Atlanta with a friend. And at some point, I transitioned away from Jerry, and I was practicing one day. And another pro, TJ Middleton, who played on the tour, he said, you ought to go down to this club and hit with this guy, this Irish guy. He's kind of quirky. He's kind of different, but he makes it really fun and, and you can get a good workout. You should go see Joseph O'Dwyer. So I go down to this club. I'm 28 years old. I'm 180 in the world. I'm trying to solve this deal. And Joe is you know, working out someone else and playing YouTube music like full on, like where the streets have no name. And, and he's like... He's he's got a sword on the side of the court and he takes a sword and like puts it into the dirt or the clay court and he's like yelling out like Irish ballads. I'm like, this guy is a crazy. Like, who is this guy? And it's like right out of a right out of a movie or or, or a book, you know, this character. And so he starts kind of hitting with me and and he's watching me and and he says, you know, there's this shot I gotta show you in your forehand. It's called the buggy whip. He's like, you got to use the buggy whip forehand. You're a lefty, you know? And this is before Nadal was buggy whipping all over the place. But, you know, Sampras was using the running forehand where he has this reverse buggy whip finish and other pros had done it. So he shows it to me. He's like, and your low volleys aren't very good. Let me show you what to do on your low volley. And I've been, I'm supposed to be a serving volleyer with my serve. Everyone kept saying serving volley, serving volley. But I kept dumping volleys, you know, missing volleys. And he's like, your low volleys are not very good. Let me show you. So he showed me a way to hit the low volley that no one else had ever shown me. I swear, I swear to you. And I was blown away because I was like, how come other coaches aren't teaching me this stuff? This is crazy. So that began our relationship. I went and I won a challenger in California right after that. I probably buggy whipped 75% of my forehands. I buggy whipped, you know, all 75% of my forehands the rest of my career. Um, my low volley got a lot better. And yeah. Anytime I put up a video of buggy whip finishes, the first thing I just, the criticism is unbelievable. It's like your arm's going to fall off surgery, rotators. Yep. How is your arm now? So interestingly enough, at one point I did, I'll be, I'll be completely honest. I did have a partial tear uh, in my rotator cuff at one time. Was it caused from excessive buggy whipping? It's possible. However, and I had long talks with, um, with Joe about this and I did my own testing as a player and then as a coach. The reason the buggy whip gets such a bad rap is that players do it wrong and coaches teach it wrong. When I see coaches and players demonstrate it, I, I start to cringe because I'm like, oh my gosh, they're going to hurt themselves. The key to the buggy whip is being able to extend first. And most players just go straight up over the same side shoulder. And if you can picture Maria Sharapova when she does it, that's going to give you shoulder problems. But if you extend out in front of you, 
And you then you bring the racket back after. You have a much less chance of injury. Another question I would have is why can some people do it and never get hurt? And why do some people do it and get hurt? Well, maybe that person needs to actually get their shoulder and get their body in better shape so that they could handle that volume. Right, yeah. So I've personally only had, I think I had one junior tennis player I coached tell me their shoulder was starting to hurt when I did it. She was pretty young. And then the next day she came back and she's like, eh, I don't feel anything anymore. So it was kind of one of those, like something happened that day, but like it was in all the players that I coached in the last decade, I never really ran into an issue. Great. I just wanted to ask. So yeah, sorry to cut you. I just thought it was an interesting topic. Yeah. And, and I think people are going to criticize things that they either haven't experienced or they don't quite understand. It's kind of like nutrition. You got one side of the fence that says they're vegan, the other side of the fence that says they're carnivores, they're meat eaters, and they're going to fight you to the death to prove their point. And it's probably similar with the buggy whip. It's like, if you're on one side of the fence, it's the same with contact point and finish. I'm a coach that focuses a lot on the follow through and the finish of a swing because I had great results as a player and as a coach doing that. And you have other coaches saying it's the contact point that matters. The follow through doesn't matter at all. The ball's already gone. And people are going to fight you to the death for what they believe in. But I'm such a curious type. I'm always going to ask questions and say, well, why and how and what if? All of a lot of my coaching and my experience is based on my own experience and the results I had. And I can tell you using the buggy whip has helped a lot of my players and it helped me break the top 100 in the world. Great. This podcast is brought to you by ASICS Tennis. ASICS is a Japanese company founded in 1949 with the purpose of giving more people the opportunity to experience how sport and movement can have a positive impact on mental well-being. They just launched their most innovative tennis range ever. Get the new Cord FF3 Novak or Gel Resolution 9 at ASICS.com. ASICS Tennis have also just launched their new Cord FF3 Novak, the only tennis shoe designed with Novak Djokovic input. To learn more about ASICS, visit their website www.asics.com. So you have Joe Dwyer teaching you the boogie whip. You win a challenger. Yep. Uh, what happens? So Joe and I, it was an interesting relationship because he's really quirky. He's really artistic. He kind of flies by the seat of his pants. I was more methodical. I was more analytical. I was more type A, probably closer to the OCD side, you know. And it was almost like he brought the fun back into the game. I had all these coaches that were very technically inclined, very into you know analysis, paralysis by analysis, I felt. And he made it fun again. He brought feel back into the game. So he had a very European approach, you know, very artistic, Italian, French type of approach. And I loved that. It made it fun again. So I really think he brought the fun back for me. And we just laughed and laughed and laughed. And we had a great time. And he showed me some really cool things that helped me see the court and see the game in a different way. He helped me to visualize my targets. He helped me with a lot. And so we would travel to tournaments, you know, maybe 10 weeks out of the year. He actually came to the U.S. Open. I qualified for the U.S. Open at the age of 29 in 2003, six months before I broke the top 100 when I kind of went on that mini run. And Joe was there with me along with um, a couple other folks. In fact, I think one night he might have even slept in Grand Central Station because he didn't have a place to stay. And, and I told him, I said, I'll get you a hotel room. He's like, no, 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 I'm good. And uh, 
next day I'm like, okay, where'd you sleep? He's like, oh, I just slept on that bench over there in Grand Central Station. I'm like, oh my gosh, this guy is, he's just, there's nobody like him in the world. (laughs) And so, and so we had a lot of laughs, a lot of fun. And um, again, he had a huge influence on the mid part of my career and helping me make that breakthrough. Great. Yeah, I'll, I'll definitely have to, I've been meaning to meet him soon when he gets, I think he's away at the moment when he gets back. I'll definitely have to meet him for, for a few stories. Yeah. Yeah. And he can talk. So just so you know, he can talk. So, you know, just be prepared that if you ask a question or even don't ask a question, He's going to tell you what the deal is. Don't be in a rush. He worked with Conan Island as well. He did. He did. He did. Yeah, he's good. Yeah. And, and interestingly enough, he helped me qualify for the U.S. Open. I played three great matches there. I beat Fernando Verdasco to qualify. He was 19 years old at the time. And I beat him bad. I mean, I served him off the court. I attacked. I won like one in four. He was chirping in Spanish, you know, to, to his team. Like, who, like what's going on here? Because he was supposed to do great things. And of course, he went on and did great things. And then I played a Razi on the grandstand in the first round and lost in three close sets. But interestingly enough, Verdasco got in as a lucky loser and got to the third round. It's funny, my career was interesting because I played a lot of top guys. I played Songo when he was 18. I played now Bandian when he was 18 or 19. I played Fernando Gonzalez at a similar stage. I played a lot of these guys and beat them like bad. And they would be like 120 in the world. And then 12 months later, they would be top 20 in the world and I'd still be 150 in the world. I'm like, gosh, why are those guys moving up and I'm not? So it was really interesting that I had some really great wins against these guys that ended up being top 10 and top five in the world. Like the whole top 100 thing is amazing. For you, what is the secret for a player to be able to break into the top 100? They can live at 150 for two years or 120, but they just can't break into the top 100. I know there's been plenty of Irish players like that, but this is epidemic. It's worldwide. And I know there's only so many. There's only like, I think last year, seven or eight people entered the top 100. So not in the men's, I'm not sure in the women's. I don't know the answer to this. Maybe you can help. You have some insight into it. Is it all mental? I think, you know, one, if I knew the exact answer, well, I guess if I would have known it when I was younger, I would have done a better job. But it's it's not just one thing. If someone tells you it's just mental, I think that they're selling you a bill of goods. However, for some players that are super gifted, let's take a curious. Obviously, he's broken the top 100. But for him to get to the top 10 in the world, it's probably mental for him, right? Mental, emotional, because he has the game. But then if you look at a guy like me, yes, I had belief system challenges. There's no question about it. I've shared some of that already. But I also had a backhand that couldn't hurt people. So when somebody so somebody could roll, roll the ball up high to my backhand, get it up high, and I would leave it short, they could attack me. And they could use that pattern consistently. And that was the book on me. You know, serve hard to Jeff's forehand, rush him on the forehand side, and then play high and slow to his backhand because he can't generate pace. So to me, it's a combination of mental mindset belief, skill set. You know, do you have the skill set in certain areas of your game? Then you also have to look at health. If I'm getting injured every four months and Nadal's never getting injured, he's got a lot better chance of accumulating points and winning matches than I do if I'm on the shelf four months out of a year. You know, I played 11 years on the tour, but if you added up all the time off, it added up to about four years. Even Nadal. Nadal would probably be the Grand Slam record holder if he didn't get hurt as much as he did. If he got hurt the same amount that Federer did, 
he would have he would have the record probably right so health plays a huge role and then and then your team you know i didn't have a great team you know no disrespect to the coaches that i had to joe and to others but if you look at these guys that are making moves you know sisipas look at the team around him look at the team he had around him better an adult all of these great players have amazing teams they have a coach they have an agent they have a stable girlfriend or wife they have a physio a trainer like they have this team around them and if a guy's 150 in the world he probably doesn't have that team around him you know i feel like you could take a lot of those guys that are 150 and you could give them dominic teams or cici passes team in a year they'd be top 50 so uh, i think team really matters Okay, yeah, it's interesting. I always thought a team one as a bit of a chicken and egg situation where, you know, the guy would be top 150, 200 and they say, I just don't have the, I know it's a bit of an excuse, but I don't have the money for the team. I don't have the money for the team. I have to break the top 100. But is that stage where you just go into your bank manager? I know it's not this easy and say, look, I need a couple of hundred grand here, 300 grand to build a team for two years. I'm going to get, as you say, physio, a masseuse, a fitness expert, a full-time coach with me. And they do that investment and they will break through. I just think it's a, it's a tricky subject. It is tricky. If I go into my bank in the US and tell them that, they're going to laugh me out of the bank. True, true. Like they're not going to say that's a viable business model. They're not going to lend me the money. So I, it might be different in Europe. But over here, it's very difficult to get that. I even look at my situation. That was a mistake I made. I, I'm not great at asking for help uh, in certain areas. And to go ask either my parents or a sponsor or a company to fund me and to give a lot of money, that's a lot of pressure you know, to perform, right? Mm-hmm. And so it's a tricky, tricky situation. But at the end of the day, if you don't have a great coach around you, maybe it's not even a team at first. If you don't have an exceptional coach around yeah. you, it's going to be very difficult to break through because you can't see your blind spots when you're out there and you're going to lose every single week and you need a cheerleader that's with you to pump you up, you know, that's with you on the courts, feeding you those balls so you can develop your backhand down the line. You know, if I had lost those matches on the tour and I had a coach that I really, really thought could help me, like believed in me, and they were working on all the different shots I was missing, if we did that every day for, for two years... I probably would have had a better career, but that requires a ridiculous amount of money and, and sacrifice. True. So anyway, what we're what you're saying is there's lots of there's lots of facets. You need a good team around you, be it even a top class coach to help you get through it. You need good mental strength. You need belief. You need injury prevention. I know that comes with having a good team as well and being diligent. And plus, you need weapons preferably on both sides. You need weapons. And like, I even look at guys that were 60 or 70 in the world and I'd watch a match and they're right there with someone 20 in the world. And on a big moment, they would miss a volley, like a pretty average makeable volley. And I would think to myself, he's probably not training that volley every day. Because you think about it, if you're not traveling with a coach, you're going to warm up, you're going to play sets, you're going to play baseline points. But you're not working on that specific low volley that you missed at break point or 30 all at five all in the fifth set. And that's the one volley or the approach shot or the running forehand, that one shot that you need to hit in that moment. And so is that belief? Is that lack of practice of that specific skill set? So now you start getting in the nitty gritty of skills. 
It's like I see patterns when players lose. It's usually specific shots and specific moments. And they are not, I, when I ask them, I'm like, do you practice that return to serve every day? And they're like, no. So how do you expect to have it when in a big moment? You're not going to. And how do you have it if you don't have a coach or someone hitting you those serves or those volleys every day until you can hit it in your sleep? Very true. They talk a lot about mental strength, about the good guys can play the 30, 40 break points really well. They make the return. They make it happen. But I'd never really thought about it the way that these guys are probably out there practicing those specific scenarios and they're doing it day in and day out and they're getting better and better. So when it happens, they're ready. Yeah, you think about like in football and when I talk about American football, the NFL, the quarterback like Tom Brady, Drew Brees, Peyton Manning, who's since retired, how many hours of game film did they study so that they could see the play happening in advance so that they could see all the cues? Now, go to fast forward to tennis. You could probably replay a lot of the same patterns over and over again. That's why you practice. But imagine if you not only watched those patterns on video, but you also got on the court and said, hey, I need to work on my return of serve. And then the next ball is going to come back here. I'm going to practice that two-shot combination. Or in my last match, I missed you know, two forehand low volleys in big moments. Let's set up that scenario again and let me get the feel of that shot so that next time it's almost like I'm seeing it happen in advance and I'm not going to panic and I'm going to know what to do in that moment. And I think some players are so uber gifted, they don't need to script it out like that. They're just going to find a way to make like a curious. He's going to make these shots because he's just so good. But I think certain players, unless they've achieved that status, they need to work on the specific scenarios, as you mentioned. I think it's most players. Would that be correct? <laughs> yeah, most players. That's right. Probably all players, right? Because even if you looked at Kyrgios, he still could get better at what he does in order to be top 10 or top five in the world. And maybe if he had a higher skill set, maybe he would be less agitated on the court because he would feel more prepared. So it's, it's an interesting dynamic. I never say it's just skill and I never say it's just mental. I say you got you to gotta work on both together. It's like a two-headed monster. It's crazy. It's just a minefield. Yeah. That's why it's good to have a good team around you that can help you, guide you in the same way and keep you on the right path day in and day out. Uh, yeah, for sure. We've talked a bit about that's a secret for top 100 success. If you were 18 again, Jeff, Apart from hiring a great team, what else, like looking back, what else would you change? About my, about my career? Your career and looking at other people. So if you're giving advice to an 18-year-old, he's top five in his country, has potential. Obviously, he can go to college if he wants, but he wants to go pro. What would you say to him from your learnings? You touched on, aside from coaching, but I, I'm probably going to stay in the coaching world. In my particular case, I started playing tennis when I was five years old. My dad was my first coach. My mom played. My stepdad played. I was number one in the country at age 12. By 15, I had dropped to 69 in the country. So I went through a big dip in the juniors. And then I basically quit all other sports. I stopped skiing. I stopped playing basketball. I grew. I went through puberty finally. I was a late developer. And I got back up to top five in the country in the 16s and then was recruited by Stanford and you know, was one of the top 18-year-olds by the time I was 18. But I was small. I had no weapons. I had no business turning pro. I was going to go to college. And so when you ask, like, what would you do different from 18? I think the two things that I would have done is I would have probably found a way to work with 
a highly technical coach like a Robert Lansdorf, who was known to help people technically in California. And he coached five number ones at various times because I had some deficiencies in my backhand by the time that I was 16, 17, 18. And they showed up later in, in life, right, on the tour. So a very, a very solid technician. And we didn't have a lot of that in Colorado. So I probably would have needed to go away for you know a weekend out of the month to go work with the coach and get a plan on how to work on it on my own. So that's number one, is, is finding a highly technical coach. And then I think having someone help me on the mental side, because yes, I was very strong mentally. Yes, I played smart tennis. I found ways to win. I was probably at the upper echelon when it comes to mental focus and mental toughness. However, I don't think we dug deep into my belief system. So I think there was a part of me when I got on the pro tour that was like, hey, I'm still that little kid from Colorado who wasn't supposed to be a pro. What do I do? Do I really deserve to be Pat Rafter or Peter Korda or Michael Chang? Or do I deserve to be on a court with Agassi and Sampras? Honestly, I don't think I had that belief that I could. And that's why... I would be up a set and a break on these guys and I would take the foot off the gas and lose in three sets. So I think if we would have started to address at 18, maybe even sooner, my, my deep rooted subconscious beliefs, that would have made a world of difference. I think the champions of today somehow have developed that belief that they're going to find a way to win no matter what. And I'm not sure I had that deep belief and fire, that will to win uh, that was required. And, and that's what I would work on the technique side, the technique side and the mental side of things. You mentioned that fire, the will to win. Do you not think that's something you're born with or that develops really early in your youth before whatever challenges arise? Or do you think that's something that an 18 year old, you can actually train that fire? I think it's difficult. So I don't think you're born with it, but I think you develop coping skills as a youngster so like, let's say you're four years old or five years old and you get your first taste of tennis and you're growing up in a certain environment where you see the world that you know your way out is to be successful. So like Djokovic, his way out was to win. Agassi, his way, way out of Nick Boletari's academy was to win, right? To not have to be there. Like, and so I think we're more, we develop this out of our environment rather than just coming out of the womb that way. True. I agree with that. Right. So by age five or six, we're already starting to develop that hunger, that inner drive, because we see our environment and we see what's hard and what's easy in our world. And in today's world, if things are come easy to you early, it might be difficult to develop that will to win. I think Nadal was completely trained as a youngster to, to have that hunger and that will. But obviously, there was a burning desire uh, to be very good. And I believe I had a burning desire to be very good. But I'm not sure it was accompanied with that deep belief that I'm going to find a way. So like if I had done a lot more kind of ritualistic practice of cultivating that, then it could have be become more of a habit. And so the point is that it wasn't st structured enough. Like my training wasn't structured enough to address these issues. It was kind of random. Like, oh, and, and that's where like some people become champions and it's kind of random. And other people, there's been a kind of a structure to how they've developed these skills or at least addressing this. So you're right in that if you don't have that will to win at 18, it's pretty tough to develop it. But here's my big but. Neuroplasticity. The brain is plastic. So 
if you decided at 18, I am going to change and develop hunger now, you could do it. It's going to take a lot of work. My brother, my half brother was a drug dealer and a drug addict and went to prison for four years and was on the other side of the law and doing all the wrong things with his life. And then one day he woke up and said, I don't want to do this anymore and I'm going to change. He completely changed his value system, how he sees the world and how he shows up in the world. And that's an example of a transformation that a tennis player could go through. It would probably require a ridiculous adversity, but it is possible. It's just, you don't see it often because most people just repeat the patterns, the same patterns they have when they're nine years old. You're going to see a lot of those patterns when they're older. However, Djokovic, people questioned his will to win when he was 18, 19, pulling out of matches, heart issues, breathing issues, bad serving, not very strong mentally, and now he's a cyborg. So it can be developed. That's that's good. That's really good to hear. Great to get your opinion on that because I think it's a, something really important. So that's life lessons. We've got secret of top 100 success. Next, we're going to touch, sorry, not life lessons. You mentioned earlier, sorry, Jeff, that you have plenty of life lessons. Do you have a top five that you usually run to? Okay, so I don't have a top five, but here's where, here's where we're going to go. We're going to go, so again, my junior career, I would say, you know, when you have dips and bumps in the road, what I did at 15 and 16, you've got to refocus and rededicate and maybe change some things that you're doing. In that case, I stopped playing sports. I rededicated myself uh, to the sport that I thought I had the best chance of getting a college scholarship. So a rededication, uh, uh, being able to evaluate when you go through uh, a rough spot, when you have adversity. Did you figure that out yourself? Uh I knew I didn't want to be 69 in the country anymore after being number one. So I think, but I was fortunate. You know, I have really, really strong parents. I have a strong foundation there. So I was able to lean on them for help. They're successful folks and they're driven folks. And so they helped me. And so I had good, good coaches in terms of maybe they weren't the best technically, but they were good people as well. So I was really lucky in that area. So a rededication or a restructuring. I'm the overnight success story that, you know, broke the top 100 in the world at age 30. You know, I wasn't supposed to be a pro tennis player and I went on to have an 11-year pro career. Very unexpected. Overnight success stories don't happen. So having that patience. Another lesson would be perseverance. You know, perseverance of the junior the junior career. You know, the pro career, two injuries before the age of 25 and coming back, having that um, perseverance to stay with it. Looking at losses or setbacks as lessons and ways to turn them into uh, positives. You know, when I have things go that don't go my way in business or in life or in tennis and losing, being able to flip that and learn the lesson, that's very important. And then finally, this might be number five. I don't know where we're at now. It is, yeah. Being curious, asking questions. You know, James touched on that. When I was 14, I had one coach that said, no one has ever asked me more questions than you are. Like you're basically annoying because you ask all these questions. But I think if you stay curious, you ask questions, then ants start to reveal themselves. And if you don't get an answer in one place, don't give up, keep looking, keep searching until you find something that works for for you. And so I think that served me really well to be a little bit different than the herd is that I continue to ask questions. I think that allowed me 
to achieve the results I did at age 30 instead of giving up and and also to be able to be a pretty good coach at a young age and then to to create an online business um, to have that to have that platform to share you you have to be curious you have to be out of the box you have to be a little different uh, to come up with this stuff. And so I encourage people to stay open and ask questions and be curious. Thank you very much for them. A lot of good tips there. And Jeff, today, I know I mentioned earlier, you're one of the first guys, early guys to start using video online, and which you're still doing to this day through your business, Tennis Evolution. Uh, you're doing a bit of coaching. What's your day made up of? Sure. So Tennis Evolution, online tennis instruction, we have a popular YouTube channel. We make a lot of free content. We sell digital courses for people to improve. We have a subscription as well. I do a lot of that. I'm creating content there. I do work with certain clients in the tennis world. I help them. Sometimes I get out on the court, help them with their game. A lot of times people will send matches into me. I'll evaluate their matches and I'll tell them, you know, shot selection, mindset, technique, footwork, all the things we've touched on. I can go in pretty deep and pretty quickly to help somebody pretty much open up the floodgates on what they need to do instead of spending six months trying to figure it out or two years, five years. In about an hour, I can say, these are the top three things you got to do. And so that's probably just from you know 40 years of being around the sport and studying it so intensely. Again, I work with clients in that area. I'm, I'm very passionate about the mind and performance and beliefs as we've touched on. And so um, the next horizon is going to be to work with folks outside of tennis as well. I've already done that. But right now I'm focusing a lot on tennis evolution because we have several courses we want to release this year. Uh, but the future is going to be more of working with folks, uh, entrepreneurs, working in the corporate space on helping successful people stay successful, become more successful, but also to be fulfilled while they do that. I think you know there's a, a lot of people are, are focused so much on the hustle and work really hard. They don't take enough time for self-care and taking care of themselves. I go to a gym called Osteo Strong once a week and Tony Robbins does it. It basically strengthens your muscles and your bones and you only have to work out like 10 minutes a week doing it. And you know, I'm 46 years old. I'm still young and strong and healthy and vibrant. And I go in there and 90% of the clientele are women over the age of 65. And my thought is, why don't we have my generation and younger generations in here doing this now so that they feel amazing when they're 65, 70 and their bones aren't weak? And so it's interesting to me that I, that's what I still focus on is performance. Like I'm walking the walk with what I'm doing so that I can teach tennis players and then other folks that don't even play tennis. But there's a lot of parallels for successful people uh, in tennis and outside of tennis. You've got to be doing the performance hacks. You've got to be taking care of yourself to be able to be happy and, and fulfilled in your life as you're moving up that whatever ladder you're moving up. It's very important you take care of your body. And I think by taking care of your body, that plays off. You're taking care of your mind also by doing that. I think it's it's really important. And tell me a bit about Racket Fit. Yeah, Racket Fit. Yeah, I, I forgot to mention that. So I don't know how I could have because it's been a huge, uh, it's been huge for me. I met up with these uh, guys that run Titles Performance Institute in the golf side. 
And Greg Rose, Dr. Greg Rose, a chiropractor by trade, last 15 years, he built up the Titleist Performance Institute. They decided to launch a certification system in tennis for coaches. So basically what we do is we teach um, the body serve connection or the body tennis connection. And the part that's missing a bit or missing a lot in tennis is that a lot of coaches are trying to help their players. They have, they have great intentions. They're trying to help their players and they're focused on changing their technique or improving their technique. But the problem with that is a lot of players don't have the physical capability to change that technique. So if you look at Federer serve and you do a side-by-side -side and you try to tell an adult player to turn their shoulders and load their hips and coil and load their back leg and drop their racket, they can't physically do it. So we can, we can give them all the technical cues, but they can't do it. And so what Racket Fit does is bridges this gap. We can now coach and certify coaches, fitness professionals, medical professionals on a common language and give them, teach them a movement screen that helps them understand where the limitations of their athletes are. So now not only can we help them with their technique, but we can screen them and find out where they're deficient, where they have limitations in their stability and their mobility throughout their body, whether it be ankle mobility, hip mobility, stability or mobility in the spine. There's a lot of factors at play. And so they've asked me to be their lead technical consultant. So I teach seminars with them. We're actually, I think we're coming to London uh, in 2020. We don't have a date set, but we're coming to London. We're going to Brazil this year. We're going to be going international. And we've been just launching this in the US. And that's been cool because it's made me a better coach. You know, I get to speak on, on what we're teaching in Racket Fit, but through the interactions with other coaches, learning from Greg, I now have a deeper understanding of how the body impacts uh, performance and how we can bridge that gap. So really excited to be a part of that project. That's very exciting. Jeff, you've busy year. 2020 is going to be a busy year for you. Lots going on and, and I'm sh you're busy as well. We are. We are. We're trying to hopefully be even busier. Yeah, loads of plans for next year. So yeah, looking forward to it. Hopefully I'll meet you somewhere around the world. I hope so. Not sure where. But yeah, no, really appreciate you taking the time to come on board. I thought it was great hearing your stories, insights, playing the other pros and all your learnings. That's what we're all about here. And I really enjoyed that. So thank you very much. Well, you do a great job with your website, with the Instagram account and sharing your passion with the world. So I appreciate you bringing me on. That was a bit longer than our usual episodes, but it was so good hearing Jeff talking so many good stories. Really hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, please leave us a nice review on your podcast app. This is our last podcast episode of 2019. Really excited to have achieved 27 episodes. If you've been here from the start, well done. Thank you very much. Really appreciate it. And for those who joined along the way, thanks a lot for your support. If you have any suggestions of somebody you'd like me to talk to in 2020, please send us a message on Functional Tennis or you can get me on Twitter at FabMall or you can email ace at functionaltennis.com. I'm always looking for feedback, suggestions, be it good or bad, throw it my way and we'll take it on board and move forward. But really looking forward to 2020. Have a great new year. Bye.